We have all heard the phrase, are you ready? Early on in my life, I heard the phrase spoken in various situations with various connotations. Are you ready? Whispered my sister right before Jack would jump out of the jack in the box, always at an unexpected moment with great surprise on my part, even though I knew he was coming. Are you ready? Shouted my dad at the bottom of the stairway to my bedroom, meaning, are you dressed? And do you have everything in your satchel? In those days, we called it a satchel. You call it a backpack today. Are you prepared for the school day? Are you ready? Yelled my mom from the kitchen, meaning it's time to go. The school bus is coming. It's coming up the street, meaning I'm totally unprepared. Are you ready? Whispered my mom into my ear, meaning, are you ready to be surprised? Just before she brought out that delicious cake. Are you ready? My middle school friend shouted with glee while the car- at the Carnival Midway, just before the whack-a-mo moment, meaning, are you ready for some fun? Then in my adult years, I would hear things like, are you ready, Ace? My nickname in college was Ace because I was accident prone. (laughs) Then in my adult years, I would hear things like, are you ready, Ace? And that was asked by my fraternity brother, meaning are you prepared for the final exam in calculus, which I did not ace. (laughs) Are you ready for the big time? Shouted by my coworker at McDonald's after getting my first real job as an engineer after college. Are you ready? Dutifully stated by my boss right before my first performance review, meaning it was too late to do anything about my circumstances. And some of y'all know what that circumstance was. Are you ready? whispered by my best friend after my wedding rehearsal, meaning, are you prepared for all the changes that are about to take place in your life? Are you ready, whispered by my father after our first child was born, meaning there is no way you're prepared. (laughs) Are you sure you're ready? Calmly spoken by Ginger, meaning, was I sure that I had everything for my big trip overseas with 25 students, meaning she knows I am not prepared. I wished I could tell you the rest of the story. Are you ready for retirement? Constantly blaring on TV commercials, meaning we have a quick, rich package for you. Are you ready for the end? Are you ready for the end of the age? In Matthew 25, 1 through 13, we hear a climatic command, and this time it is not a question. It's not the question, are you ready? Rather, it is a climatic command to be ready, to be on the alert. Jesus commands us to be on the alert. We who claim to be his disciples. Let's look at Matthew 25, verses 1 through 13. Then the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins 
who, take their, who took their torches, in the original it's torches, not lamps, who took their torches and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were prudent. For when the foolish took their torches, they took no oil with them. By the way, that's a very foolish thing to do. But the prudent took oil and flask along with their torches. Now, while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. But at midnight, there was a shout, Behold the bridegroom, come out to meet. And then all those virgins rose, and they adorned their torches. The foolish said to the prudent, Give us some of your oil, for our torches are going out. But the prudent answered, No, there will not be enough for us, and you too. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready, literally in the original, the ready ones or the prepared ones. And they went in with him to the wedding feast, and the door was shut, with the connotation shut and locked. Later, the other virgins also came, saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. For Messiah's people, what does it mean to live in readiness? What does it mean to live a life of awareness, of vigilance, of watchfulness, of alertness, a life of preparedness. In the prior chapter in Matthew 24, Jesus' disciples are pointing out the beautiful outbuildings under construction in the temple precinct. By the way, they had large cranes that lifted many-ton stones for those outbuildings that would continue to be built until 62, 64 A.D., somewhere around that time. And he uses the word for buildings under construction. Can you just imagine seeing that temple precinct and the outer buildings, the stoa and so forth, still under construction? As Jesus is beginning to answer his disciples. Prior in chapter 24, he says that he talks about this city and this temple would be left desolate. And so it prompts them to ask those some questions. As Jesus leaves the temple precinct going to the Mount of Olives, he says to his disciples, Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here, these big, many-ton stones, will be left upon another which will not be torn down. And as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will all these things happen and what will be the sign of your coming? And what will be the sign of the end of the age? Jesus then goes into a general discussion about the birth pangs of this age. False prophets, wars, rumors of wars, national enmities and famines and worldwide uh, earthquakes and martyrdom of Messiah's people. Increase in lawlessness, deceptions and the widespread pre preaching of the gospel. 
and many, many false Christ. In verse 29 then, right before the Son of Man comes, he's, he gives this, this statement. The sign of his coming will be obvious to everyone in verses 29 through 31. He then says in a parable that his disciples would be able to recognize general signs of the time like observers of the fig tree knowing that the summer harvest is near when that fig tree gives out its soft leaves. In verses 32 through 35. And though he's just stressed the nearness of his coming, he goes on to say that the time of his coming is unknowable. Unknowable. He tells his disciples, like in the days of Noah, no one knows the moment of the, his coming in blessing and judgment. Not angels, not the Son, but the Father alone. Not even the Son. Verses 36 through 41. And then in verse 42, Jesus introduces a series of parables and focuses on different subtle aspects about being alert in view of the unknown hour of his coming. And in Matthew 24, 42, a warning in the form of a command, be alert. Serves as a link to his preceding statements about the unknown hour in verses 36 through 41, and simultaneously serves as a bridge to the first parable focusing on alertness. The parable of the householder and thief focuses on that alertness. The primary point of this parable is that the coming of the Son of Man will be like unexpected suddenness the only, that only thievery and the night exhibits. This thief in the night parable introduces the controlling theme of all the parables that follow, living a life of alertness. Jesus frames the thief parable with an echo warning on the other side of the parable of the thief with this statement, you be ready. This readiness command leads into the parable of the trustworthy and untrustworthy slave. A parable that again focuses on a constant vigilance and faithful service, realizing that at any time the master could return. The parable we are looking at, the parable of the ten virgins, focuses on a specific element of alertness that is required of Messiah's people, namely, the characteristic of preparedness. We know this because Jesus moves from the world of the parable, the first 12 verses in chapter 25, emphasizing, of all things, preparedness, to the singular warning in verse 13. Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. And this expression, be on the alert, only relates to the five virgins who were ready. Literally, the ready ones. All ten arose and were alert when the announcement came, but not all were prepared. This heightened understanding of being alert to include being prepared is the key concept to living in readiness for His return. Are you living in readiness for His return? In this passage, the parable of the ten virgins, five prudent and five foolish, we have a parabolic picture of the most momentous event of our age, 
the coming of the exalted Son of Man, the one who comes in glory like nothing we've ever seen. It will be the conclusion of the already not yet kingdom, which was inaugurated with his ministry, death, and resurrection, and will not be consummated until the exalted Son of Man returns in glory. The word then in verse 1 of chapter 25, then the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins, refers to the time of the Son of Man's arrival, looking back at Matthew 24, 30, and 24, 37, and 39, to a time in the future when the authoritative kingdom reign of God will be consummated at the end of this age through the sovereign authority of the exalted Son of Man. The consummation event of God's kingdom reign through Christ will be like the story of the bridegroom and the ten virgins. A delayed, sudden arrival that will result in very different final outcomes for the foolish and the prudent. As R.T. France says, it speaks to an eschatological situation of how things will be at the coming of the Son of Man and the consummation of the age. To understand more clearly certain elements related to the ceremonial procession concluding with the marriage feast, and in particular, some subtle details bearing on the understanding of preparedness, it's necessary to look at what we know and don't know about the contextual setting of the wedding procession in the time of Jesus. Our understanding is limited and somewhat piecemeal for the sources available to us, from the sources available to us. Approximately 10 to 12 months after a marriage contract was signed, the betrothed husband, the groom, and the bride consummated the marriage ceremony with a procession and a wedding feast, usually on a prescribed date set many months earlier. The bridegroom with some close friends would proceed from his house to the house of the bride's father, usually after sunset. By the way, the difference between a Jewish wedding procession and a Roman wedding procession is that the Roman wedding procession would be shouting along the way by those in the procession with all kinds of coarse words and vulgar words about certain things but not with the Jews, where there would be blessings exchanged at the house of the bride and other brief ceremonies, and then the procession would follow through the streets to the house of the groom or the groom's father. There would be statements of joy along the way. Those in the procession would carry their own celebratory torches along the way. Celebratory torches along the way. Thus together, the invited guests carrying their torches would produce a spectacular celebratory effect in the absolute pitch darkness of the night. You know, we don't realize how dark the night is in the ancient world. Street lamps weren't invented, street lights weren't invented till the fourth century at Ephesus. The pitch darkness of the night. And these torches would also help to identify the uninvited and the ruffians along the way. 
These torches were employed in the Jewish and Greco-Roman world for outdoor lighting at night. Ordinary Herodian-type lamps generally would be inappropriate for outdoor use. The wind would easily extinguish them. Torchlight processions in the time of Jesus were commonly seen with weddings. In the Roman world, the celebratory torch is the most common symbol of marriage and even a metonymy for marriage itself. You're going to see torches on the back of Roman coins celebrating marriage. And the other one was a ring that Romans used with two clasped hands on the ring, engraved on the ring for partnership. But among Jews, this procession and this wedding festival that followed were the very consummation of the marriage cycle. There is no occurrence in the New Testament, by the way, where the word torch, uh, I'm sorry, where the word, this word lampas, clearly refers to a lamp. By the way, we get that from lampas, lamp, sounding like lamp. With the possible exception in Acts 20, 18, and even that sense is debatable. You know, at the, in that three-story upper room at Troas where the boy falls out of the window. In our parable, 10 young marriageable girls, virgins 12 to 15 years of age, can you imagine that, who possibly had assisted the bride. We're not even sure about that in this parable, what their function was. These virgins are invited guests who carry celebratory tor- torches in the marriage procession. The story clearly suggests that they are outside awaiting to meet and join the procession and then escort the groom with lighted torches to the marriage feast. The word translate to meet in verses 1 and 6 when referring to processionals has the idea of to meet and to escort. There is an element of the story that indicates that the virgins had not yet ignited their torches Notice in verse 6 and 7, when at midnight they hear the loud announcement, a cry to those invited to join the groom and processional, Behold the bridegroom, come out to meet and escort. All ten maidens arise from their sleep and all ten trim their lamps. The word is adorn or put in order, torches. It was never used in the history of Greek literature for trimming a wick on a lamp. And this phrase, trim their lamps in verse 7, as translated in most English translations, is never employed in Greek literature for trimming a wick on any lamp. The phrase refers to preparing torches, or, uh, or as it's called, adorning torches. It's the verb cosmeo. Most modern commentaries pick up on this. Understanding this small detail has significant import for understanding our parable. By the way, that's why I've had to go into so much detail before we get to the point of the parable. They are not igniting small Herodian-era lamps or lanterns which have gone out during their sleep. Rather, they are adorning long entwined branches with oil-soaked resin rags to be once ignited and added to the grand light of the processional. These torches would, be, would only last about 15 to 20 minutes, maybe 30 minutes, without resupply of oil. These nuptial torches are described in the sources as quick-fading fire. 
In the parable of the ten virgins, crucial elements of the wedding procession seem to be lacking. It is apparently a procession to the groom's house where the consummation of the wedding celebration will take place with a wedding feast. To the interpreter's chagrin, and I mean to the interpreter's chagrin, major elements of the parable seem to be missing. Participants and features of what we know about first century wedding processions are not included in this story. The bride is left out. The invited guests holding their own torches along the way are not mentioned. The relatives are not mentioned. The location where the virgins are sleeping is not mentioned. The escorting of the groom by the virgins and other invited guests is only hinted at. The identity of the announcer is not given who announces about the groom's coming. And even the place from which the bridegroom proceeds is not specifically mentioned in the parable. The import of these omissions, however, is to focus on two key emphases of the parable. The focus of attention is on two participants. First, the bridegroom. Its referent is obviously Jesus as he uses this metaphor back in Matthew 9.15 and in Matthew 22 with the son's wedding, the son of the king's wedding. And second, the ten virgins, that's the other, the other participants, five foolish and five prudent, who are invited guests, five of them dishonoring the groom by their lack of preparation, and five of them honoring by their preparation and consequent service, escorting the groom. This parable purposely focuses on the imminent arrival. They went out to meet, verse 1. And of the delayed bridegroom, verse 5, and the consequent measure of preparedness demanded of those who escort the groom at his coming. The parable puts an emphasis on the preparation of the maidens. The foolish ones lack the appropriate preparation. They take no oil. They take no oil with their torches. How could you dream of doing that in the first century? The torch would only last two minutes as the, as the cloth burns up. Yet the prudent ones make ample preparation. They take extra oil in flask along with their torches. Verse 4, And with the delay of the bridegroom, all ten maidens not off to sleep. Verse 5, And in the middle of the night... A loud shout from some distance away announces the nearness of the groom's processional. Verse 6. Come out to meet. Come out to meet the bridegroom. Come out to meet in procession and escort the bridegroom. All ten maidens hear from a distance in the stillness of the late night. Behold the bridegroom come out to meet. The groom is obviously only minutes away. By the way, in that darkness and silence of the night, that shout could be from a, a pretty far distance. For purposes of understanding the parable at this juncture, and I've had to go into a lot of detail before we get into what I want to talk about, there are many similarities among the two groups of virgins. We must recognize that. All ten virgins are doing the same thing. They all go out early, verse 1. They all take their torches, verses 2 and 4. And all are on the procession route to meet and escort the bridegroom, verse 1. 
All ten fall asleep, verse 5, they get drowsy and not off to sleep. They're certainly not awake. All ten hear the announcement of his coming, verse 6, and respond at the same time. They all arise together at the same time to meet the groom. Verse 7, and all spring into action and adorn their torches all at the same time. They, they prepare their torches. They adorn them. You know, in the ancient world, when you adorn torches, you take that cloth and you put it on the sticks and get it ready to ignite. It's not going to last long. However, there is one major difference in the response of the ten virgins. The five foolish virgins react with alarm, realizing that they are not prepared for the arrival of the groom. Give us some of your oil, for our, our torches are sputtering out. Verse 8. Their torches will last a couple of minutes without oil. The five prudent virgins, knowing that they are prepared for at least 15 minutes, possibly even 30 minutes or more, with a reserve of oil for their torches, respond to the foolish maidens with a strong negative answer and with wisdom and with wisdom. By advising the foolish to go purchase oil for their own torches, verse 9. The prudent have the wisdom to know that if they were to share with the unprepared ones, they would not have enough oil for the procession back to the groom's house. A great dishonor to the groom. The climax of the parable is verses 10 through 12. The climax of the parable begins in verse 10. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him. They escorted him in to the wedding feast, and the door was shut with the idea of shut and locked. Notice the phrase, those who were ready, is literally in the original language an epithet, a label. The prepared ones are the ready ones, the ever ready ones. This suggests something of great import for understanding this parable. It's translated in a loose way, but in Greek, the word is just simply the prepared one. It hits you like a ton of bricks when you read it in the original. And while the five maidens are away to purchase oil, the bridegroom comes in procession, and literally the prepared ones enter with him into the wedding feast, this time of seven to 14 days of great joy. The prepared ones namely the five maidens, and, and, it doesn't say maidens, it says the prepared ones, and the other invited guest who carry the appropriate celebratory torches enter together with the bridegroom. That's for people like us. And then the door is climatically shut. The door is shut. What a moment. By the way, are there times when you've been scared to death because of the situation that you're involved in? I once fell off of a bridge, a large bridge, doing construction, and as I was falling, I said, I'm going to die. That's what went through my mind. And it felt like it would be forever for me to get to the bottom. And I landed in a mud pit, and that saved my life. But I have that experience for the rest of my life about not being prepared. Somebody had forgot to put a piece of lumber 
underneath the bridge between the spans that I was scooting my bottom on along the way as I was scraping off concrete underneath the bridge. And that'll live with me to my dying days that I was not prepared. Since it's extremely late, the door to the courtyard is locked. By the way, there were thieves roaming and bad guys roaming even in Jerusalem in the night. The verb connotes the idea that the door is shut and locked, and later the other remaining virgins, and I like what they say, the remaining. It says the other virgins, but it's also the remaining virgins. It can be translated either way. Come saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. And the parable no longer uses the contrast of wise and foolish. At this point, it no longer uses that contrast, wise and foolish. It's too late for that. The contrast now is between the prepared ones who have entered into the wedding feast versus the other virgins, you know, the other ones who remain outside. Those who remain crowd at the locked door they cry out before that door with a plea, open up for us, open up for us. This alarming reply gives, there is an abrupt reply to this alarming cry. Truly, I say to you, I do not know you. And this cry, excuse me, this alarming reply is not by the doorman, as you might expect but rather by the bridegroom himself on the other side of the door. And it echoes Jesus' response to the foolish ones in Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. In verse 13, be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. Jesus actually applies this parable. It's ever-ready application. Jesus gives the lesson that should be drawn from the parable. It is straight talk from Jesus' mouth about what the parable is teaching. He is hammering home with what kind of application should be drawn from this parable. However, the arresting application, be on the alert, for you do not know the day nor the hour, seems like a contradiction, does it not? Because they all were sleeping. It doesn't seem like straight talk. In most contexts, gregoreo means to be awake or stay awake and sometimes be on the alert. A few times, keep watch. As translated here, oh, by the way, Peter couldn't keep watch before Christ's death. He says, Peter, can you not keep watch? Can you not stay awake and pray? that you would not fall into casting because of the temptation that awaits you as a follower of the Messiah. You're tested. You're tempted to deny him is where we're going with that. In our parable, all ten virgins arise from sleep at the loud announcement of his coming 
none have stayed awake. Jesus is teaching in this parable that being on the alert is more than just being awake and knowing that the time is near at hand. It's not a passive activity, just standing back and wondering when he's coming, merely watching on the sidelines for the event to occur. Rather, an active participation at his coming brought about by a prior preparedness for the event. Wise preparation will make us ready for his arrival. The epithet in verse 10, literally, prepared ones, ready ones, demands that Messiah's people are to live in a state of readiness for use or action for the Lord. For Messiah's people, what does it mean to live in readiness? This parable does not focus on how to be prepared. Isn't that interesting? It doesn't focus on how to be prepared. We get that from other scriptures. But this parable focuses on the truism that true disciples will be prepared. The point of this parable we are looking at today is rather obvious, and yet the point can be missed by over-applying it. All who know Jesus as our saving Lord have an epithet that is our identifier. Everyone in this room who knows him as Lord and Savior has this identifier, this epithet. We are the prepared ones, the ever-ready ones for his service. The command, be on the alert then with its connotative idea, drawn from the context of the parable, simply means be prepared, issuing a sobering, straightforward exhortation to live in readiness. Between the two advents, through prudent preparation, until the unexpected, expected time, of our Lord's return. The readiness fits with our claim to be disciples. All who know Christ as their Savior and Lord bear this label, the ever-ready ones. We have the label, the ever-prepared ones. What does it mean to bear this label, this epithet? First, we as Messiah's people, the ever-ready ones, live with the appropriate expectation of His arrival now and the appropriate preparation for his delayed coming later. When I think of ever-ready, I think of the ever-ready battery. Today, the ever-ready battery company manufactures the Energizer Bunny and has the Energizer Bunny for a logo. When you put an ever-ready battery in a flashlight or in a toy or in a laser pointer, it is ready and prepared at the touch of a button for reliable and long-lasting service to be used whenever and where for whatever purpose it is supposed to serve. We too are to be ready and prepared at a moment's notice for reliable and long-lasting service to be used of our Lord whenever and for whatever purpose He desires. For us, we may recognize the general signs of the time like observers of the fig tree, knowing that the summer harvest is near, or like the ten virgins who have gone in expectation of the bridegroom's coming, in verse 1. Yet no one knows the exact timetable except the Father alone. We are to be prepared. We are not to be distracted by the timetable, but to expect now and be prepared for appropriate use as the later arrives. When he comes, it will be more recognizable than any event in world history up to that time. 
more recognizable than the combined events of World War I in terms of everybody knowing about it. World War II, almost 200 worldwide famines since, that, since the time of Christ. Hundreds of major plagues that have wiped out millions of people on this planet that humans have experienced in between the two advents. When he comes, everyone will know it. Be on the alert then. Be prepared then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. Second, we as Messiah's people, as the ever-ready ones, live to honor the Messiah in service through prudent preparation. All ten virgins went out in expectation of escorting the bridegroom, probably near nightfall. But only the prepared ones were able to serve and to honor him as torch-bearing participants in the procession to the wedding feast. Their purpose is to escort him. They're participants in his coming. We escort him and we are with him as we enter into the wedding feast. The bridegroom came and the the prepared ones went in with him, verse 10. The wise virgins, responsibly prepared, took the torches and the flask of oil. This was all done for the purpose of, and in their minds, escorting and honoring the bridegroom. But in contrast with the foolish ones who took torches without any oil, and thus needed to leave and purchase oil at the last moment, last second, they miss out on the procession and the wedding festival altogether. Verses 10 and 11. As Keener points out, Bridal processions were so important that later rabbis even suspended their lectures so they could hail a passing bride. For the groom and for the attendants, weddings even took precedence over some, this is amazing, over some ritual obligations in Judaism. So a breach of etiquette was serious. To participate in the bridegroom's wedding was a great honor. To have spoiled the wedding for the bridegroom by failing to do their part was a great insult to everyone in the wedding celebration. As the scripture states in Colossians 3.17, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of Jesus, Lord Jesus. 1989, The ever-ready battery company launched the Energizer Bunny with the tagline, nothing outlasts the Energizer. They keep going and going and going. Nothing outlasts the Energizer Bunny. In 1999, a decade after ever-ready's launch of the Energizer Bunny, Ad Age would name the Energizer Bunny one of the one of the top brand icons of the century. Ad Age, in giving the award, stated that the bunny is the ultimate symbol of longevity, perseverance, determination. How much more should we, as the ever-ready ones, be seen as those who are well-prepared for longevity in service to him? We, as the ever-ready ones, live to honor our Messiah King, and service for as long as it takes. Third, Messiah's people, the ever-ready ones, will enjoy his presence, yet the foolish will be rejected. In the ancient world of Jerusalem, 
He's speaking and the temple, the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem. As well as today, wedding feasts exemplify joy and blessing, as in John 3.29. John the Baptist talks about this incredible joy at the wedding celebration. For those who enter in, they will enjoy his presence forever. Yet for those remaining, those outside, there is a terrifying reality of being shut out outside the door. Our parable doesn't go into detail about that. The parable before goes into great detail about it. And the parable after will do the same thing. This parable makes us want to ponder after that door is shut. What about those ones who are remaining outside? Crying out, Lord, Lord, open up to us. And for us who read this parable, there's a moment of reflection on the ending, echoing this, this severer eternal punishment or judgment and punishment in Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. And Matthew, of course, God's will is following Jesus, following the one who saves his people from their sins following their Lord to the end. Being unprepared at an unexpected time can have a disastrous result. I've known that many times in my life. As I said, my name was AC for Ace Accident Prone. I recently saw a documentary that reminded me of this fact of not being prepared. Privates George E. Elliott Jr. and Joseph L. Lockhart had awakened in their tent at 3.45 a.m. in the warmth of an Oahu night and gotten their radar fired up, this experimental radar, and scanning it 30 minutes later, scanning with it. Radar was still in its infancy, far from what it would become in a later time. But the privates could still spot things further out than anyone had ever spotted with binoculars or telescopes. And suddenly they saw blips on the screen, a lot of blips. The planes were 137 miles out, just east of due north. The unknown swarm, the first wave of 187 planes were inbound and closing at two miles a minute over the shimmering blue of the vacant sea, coming directly at Joe and George. It was just past seven on the morning of December 7th, 1941. Only after some debate did the privates decide to tell someone in authority. And when they contacted the information center at Fort Shafter, a few miles east of Pearl Harbor, the answer came back, tell them to forget about it. And the radio operator said, forget it. Don't worry about it. It's probably just nothing. Shortly thereafter, the waves of planes struck. These unprepared ships lined up like sitting ducks in an overcrowded harbor. Their anti-aircraft guns were locked as well as their ammunition. Their ammunition lockers had these huge locks on them. The only planes coming to help were 25 unaware bombers, of all things, without armament. 
The United States suffered its worst naval defeat, 19 ships sunk, 2,403 killed, and 1,178 injured. For Messiah's people, we are to live in readiness, to live in readiness as the prepared ones, looking forward to the joy of fellowship with our saving Lord forever, in contrast to those who will meet his coming with alarm. We are to live in preparedness, with preparedness for our Lord's return. I would like to turn our attention to someone who lived in solidarity with us in the time in between, between the two advents, in the inner between period. That was our beloved Paul. Let me read what he says. This is how he prays for the Colossian believers. He's recalling his prayers to the Colossians. For this reason also, since the day we've heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of him and the knowledge of his will in all scriptural wisdom and understanding so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, in every way, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. And here it comes, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. That's the true energizer right there. For the attaining of all steadfastness, steadfastness and patience. Joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in the sphere of light. In His glory. We are like people in a train in fact, in Colossians later, it's going to use language like a procession train following in the coattails of our Messiah in glory. But let's pray. Father, we anticipate your son's return when we get to join him in glory. We pray that we would be active participants in what you have given us to do until that time. We pray that your spirit would empower us, give us that ever-ready energy, even when we don't feel like it. Prepare us to meet our Savior, either through death or through his coming again. We ask this in the name of Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen.